all facial paralysis talks podcast content, including associated resources, are for information purposes only. The information that is provided in this podcast and on any webpage where we have added this podcast does not replace your relationship with your doctor. Talk to a qualified healthcare professional before making medical decisions or if you have questions about your health. Welcome to the Facial Paralysis Talks podcast. This podcast series is created by an international collaboration of facial palsy warriors to bring awareness and share personal experiences. We will offer tips to those affected by Bell's palsy, Ramsey-Hunt syndrome, and other conditions causing facial palsy. Each podcast episode will be hosted by various warriors from the facial palsy community. Some of our episodes will include special guests who have facial palsy expertise from the medical community. Hi, I'm Christina from Vancouver, British Columbia in Canada, and I'm with Michael from San Diego, California in the United States. My facial palsy experience came during the first week of March in 2018, and I'm a facial palsy warrior. Michael, tell me when you first dealt with your facial palsy experience. Yes, thank you, Christina. I was diagnosed April the 21st, 2005 with bilateral Bell's palsy. What this means is my face is paralyzed on both the left and the right side, and I'm a facial palsy warrior. So glad to be hosting this first episode with you, Michael. Why don't we just briefly talk about why we chose to do this? Yes, thank you, Christina. We want to make a difference for others newly diagnosed and those warriors who continue to deal with facial palsy. In addition, to bring community awareness and education about a condition that is more common than we think but we don't talk about. In this episode, we will be interviewing Susan Rankin, who is a facial and vestibular therapist. She discusses the function and anatomy of the facial nerve, the causes of facial palsy, the difference between Bell's palsy and Ramsey-Hunt syndrome, what to do and what to avoid during the acute phase, which is probably what you really want to hear, and the different levels of injury one can get. It's all important stuff, but we do have topics listed along with their timestamp in the text description in case you want to skip directly to any one topic, such as the do's and don'ts. And this is the part of our podcast where we're going to have a conversation with Susan Rankin. Susan is a facial palsy and vestibular physiotherapist, and she has been working with facial therapy patients for around 33 years. Susan, can you share a little bit more about your background as it relates to facial palsy? Yes, I can. Um, thank you for inviting me to take part in this podcast. Um, I, I was trained as a physiotherapist at McGill University, and I went on to do a master's at McMaster University. These are both in Canada. And then I went uh, to work at Sunnybrook Hospital, where I took part in a research project studying uh, facial neuromuscular retraining. That was when I was first introduced to it, and I was trained to do it, and I've been doing it ever since, and that was in 1986. And it's an area I'm very passionate about. Great. And I also know that you've been training others to do facial therapy as well. Yes, I do. I do uh, usually several workshops a year. Mm-hmm. And are there, is there, are, are there any other physiotherapists that you partner with to do that work? Uh, yes, I sometimes partner with uh, Jackie Deals, who's in uh, Madison, Wisconsin. 
Awesome, Susan. Thank you for introducing yourself and your background. And so my question to you on behalf of our listeners is, can you uh, tell us a little bit about what facial paralysis is? Yes. Well, let's uh, start with the word paralysis. So the word paralysis just means that there's absolutely no movement of a muscle. And the reason there's no movement of that muscle is because the nerve that talks to the muscle and tells it what to do is not working. So facial paralysis means that the muscles of the face are not working because the facial nerve is not communicating with those muscles. And um, I, just for our listeners who are dealing with this, I'm just going to bring forward, you know, what what it is for somebody to really go through this. So for me, I felt my eye getting dry. I wear contact lenses. Um, and when it first happened, my eye was getting dry. I thought it was just the contact lens. Put a new one in. And it, it just kept getting dry. Then I felt like I had a little bit of freezing, um, the way that you would get at a dentist's office, but still with sensation. So I looked in the mirror and I realized something was, was happening. And as as the, the time went on, I had, and what I mean by that is a few days passed after I went to ER and, and all of that stuff, because I still had a little bit of movement when I went to ER, that then, then I had less and less access to move the left side until I didn't feel um, any access to move the left side because I was dealing with complete paralysis after a week. Um, and for me, I had pain and some people have pain as well. Um, so, so that's just uh, one person's um, initial reaction to what it can feel like to feel like we're paralyzed. Uh, and every other part of my body wanted to move my face rather than my face. It was very frustrating. At this point, let's help people get a brief understanding of the structure and function of the facial nerve and facial muscles. And just to make everybody aware, the facial nerve is also known as the seventh cranial nerve. So, Susan, why don't you start talking about that a little bit and, and see how how well we can help our listeners to understand a little bit about what's going on. Absolutely. So the, the facial nerve, and as Christina said, it's it's the seventh cranial nerve, uh, arises from the base of the brain in an area called the brain stem, and more specifically in an area called the pons. And it runs from there off of the brain through a very long and very narrow bony canal. And it continues through that canal until it gets to a little hole that it exits into the face, and then it branches into its five main branches, and then it further branches out to all those different muscles and other functions that we have. And what's really interesting about the branching is that no two people have the same branching pattern. The um, nerve is very much like a telephone wire, and I always I have a telephone wire in my office that I like to show people, and basically the nerve is held together uh, with some cells that um, surround it and help to the nerve to conduct more quickly along those wires. Inside we have little tubes, and in a telephone wire they're all different colors, and they hold the wires or the nerve fibers that go to our muscles. We have 26 paired muscles on each side of our face and so the major part of that nerve is to provide expression and speech but there are a couple of other functions that the facial nerve does as well so it supplies tears to the one side of the face taste to the front two-thirds of the tongue on that side and there are a few salivary glands that are also supplied additionally we get a sound dampening muscle that helps us protect our eardrum 
And there's a little bit of sensation on the ear, uh, so the part that's just sitting out, out on the side of your head. But the rest of the face has a different nerve that supplies sensation to the face. And lastly, there's a little bit of, uh, there are a couple of muscles that help in swallowing. So actually, there's a, quite a few functions of the facial nerve in addition to all those expressions that we have. Awesome. Thank you, Susan. And thank you for really uh, describing and clarifying what it is uh, to have, have official paralysis and how all of our nerve endings really are connected and how it really shows how our, our face um, is connected to our sense cranial nerve and how it all impacts another inside of our face. Mm-hmm. Which brings me, I actually brings up a question for myself, is how are the facial muscles different from the muscles in the rest of our body? Oh, that's a great question, because there is quite a difference, actually, between them. Um, I think the biggest and the most important one is that facial muscles, because they're considered postural muscles. So, in other words, the minute you sit up in the morning, your facial muscles are working, whether you're expressing yourself or not. They have a certain resting tone that helps us keep our face from um, from uh, being too relaxed. Because of that... Our facial muscles take a long time to deteriorate when a nerve isn't talking to it, up to a year, and sometimes in some cases it's been more than a year. This is an important fact because traditionally, way back, when I was first trained even, we used electrical stimulation to try and stop the muscles from deteriorating in the face. We now know we don't need to do that because the facial muscles will hang in there for literally a year or more. So that's an important uh, difference between the facial muscles and the skeletal muscles. The other one is that our facial muscles receive input from two different parts of our brain. So they receive input from the motor cortex, which is the part that guides movement, but it also receives input from what's called the limbic system, which is our emotional center. And what do we use our faces for? We use them for emotion communication, expression. So there has to be an emotional component to it. And this is something that's important when you're doing facial uh, retraining is to use emotion when you're expressing or trying to do certain movements. The last thing is that there's a slightly different structure to the muscle. In our skeletal muscles, we have a little organ in there that's a protective organism. So if you overstretch a muscle, it will actually cause the muscle to release to protect it. We don't have those in our faces, probably because we don't necessarily need to worry about overstretching our facial muscles. They're not used in that way. We use our skin, which is very close to our facial muscles, to help us know where where we are moving. So we can always tell what our expression is by the fact that our facial skin is moving. So those are the three main differences. Well, thank you, Susan, for elaborating on the differences. That's really important. And while I would have really have liked to have known about that when I was first dealing with facial paralysis in the acute phase, I I think it's a benefit that the facial muscles don't atrophy in the same way that other muscles do. Yeah. And honestly, this information I hope will allow everybody to know and understand fully that that rest is so important and that's the number one thing that really can help. Yeah. Great, Susan. Thank you for again sharing that valuable information. And so it brings me to my next question um, is what causes a facial paralysis? 
Wow. Okay. So there are quite a few causes, but let's talk about the structural cause of a facial palsy. So the primary structural cause of a facial palsy or facial paralysis when it's in the periphery, so when it's come off of the brain, is from compression in that long bony canal I talked about um, earlier on. There's no room in that bony canal for anything except the three nerves that travel there. It's the facial nerve, the hearing nerve, and the balance nerve. All are in that little narrow canal. And they're quite happy in there under normal circumstances. But if you throw an inflammation from a virus or a bacteria or a tumor that manages to squeeze its way into the top of that tunnel, it starts to compress the nerves inside. And so depending depending on how much inflammation there is or how big that tumor is will cause damage to one or more of the nerves in the canal. The other possible cause of facial paralysis is central, so in the brain. So you have to also consider things like tumors and strokes and um, vascular accidents that could happen that will affect the center of the brain where the facial nerve connects to. The one big difference between a central facial palsy and a peripheral facial palsy is that for central, so for example a stroke, only the bottom two-thirds of the face is affected. So that person can still raise their eyebrows and quite often can close their eyes. So it's one of the ways you can tell whether you've had um, damage to the nerve after it leaves the brain or before. Years and years ago, they used to do something called a decompression surgery, which would open up that bony canal. Then they kind of realized, well, the surgery itself caused some damage. Um, So they don't do that anymore because now we have corticosteroids. And so corticosteroids are powerful anti-inflammatories. And that's one of the ways that we can reduce the compression on the nerve, but it must be done very, very early on, within the first 48 hours. Great, Susan. And as you're explaining this, um, my next, I'm thinking, what's causing the compression? Does the medical community know? Well, yeah, it's, the, it's the inflammation on the lining of the nerves. So if, if there's a virus or a bacteria that um, attacks the lining of that nerve, it will swell. Uh, and so in order for it to swell, it has to have space to swell. But that little bony canal doesn't allow any space for swelling. So the actual, the bony canal is what's causing the compression because the nerve is too fat. So great. Um, there can be some confusion by those dealing with facial paralysis about what Bell's palsy is and what Ramsey-Hunt syndrome is. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> We've heard of people who have been misdiagnosed where Ramsey-Hunt is most po- probably the culprit, but it is being considered as Bell's palsy by medical staff. So maybe we can get into a little bit more of the differences between Bell's palsy and Ramsey-Hunt. Are there marked differences between the two that we can really identify? Yeah, there are. And and I think um, because they're the two most common causes of facial paralysis, it's important to, to know about that. So Bell's palsy, at this point, is not 100% certain what the cause is, but during testing um, has been shown that it might be the herpes simplex 1 virus, which is the cold sore virus. So it's a very common virus. Many, many people have it just dormant in their body and under periods of stress uh, or illness or tiredness or, um, you know, other sickness, it, it'll come out because the immune system is suppressed. 
Ramsey-Hunt syndrome is caused by the herpes zoster virus, which is the shingles or the chicken pox virus. It's a much, much stronger virus. There is a difference, too, in the way that people present symptomatically. So with the Bell's palsy, the main symptom is loss of movement, dry eye, so inability to close the eye, inability to smile. There sometimes can be a little ache behind the ear for maybe a couple of days, but pain is not a huge feature for Bell's palsy. Whereas for Ramsey Hunt, it is quite severe. And so if somebody starts talking about severe ear pain and that's more, they want to talk more about the pain than about the weakness in their face, I'm often um, suspicious of a Ramsey Hunt. The problem is, is that quite often when people present at the emergency room, they don't show any rash or the little blister vesicles um, that are typical for Ramsey Hunt. Some people do, and typically they will be in the ear canal, around the ear, behind the ear, down the neck, or on the tongue. So there's some of the common places where people will actually show these little blisters or kind of a rash. But it's not uncommon to have Ramsey Hunt without a rash. So the pain is one of the biggest um, distinguishing features. And one of the other features is that with Ramsey Hunt, because it's a stronger virus, it's going to have more inflammation. There's going to be fatter nerves, and therefore there's going to be more compression. And that will involve the hearing nerve and the balance nerve. So people get symptoms of dizziness and imbalance as well. Okay. Thank you very much, Susan, for making those distinctions between Bell's palsy and Ramsey-Hunt syndrome. Mm-hmm. It's really important for those of us who are first dealing with this. It's scary for us, and it's good to know this information so that we can uh, come with knowledge to our doctors when we're feeling like we need to have more done um, mm-hmm. to find out what's going on. And um, I'm as a person who's dealt with this, I, I would suggest perhaps that uh, someone ask for a uh, a blood test because I, I don't believe at this point that blood tests are standard when we walk in and, and they see that we have um, a facial paralysis taking place. No, they're not. Yeah. So, yeah. So I, I would suggest that that would be something that, that you can do to advocate for yourself when you're going into the ER or if you've already gone to ER and you want to find out what, what could be going on, go to your doctor and say, Hey, I want to find out if, if I've got, you know, some viruses taking place here that are attacking my body. And as I'm sitting here listening to you both, uh, what's coming up for me is we have met people who've had different conditions that cause facial paralysis, some of whom get permanent paralysis, such as myself, whom I've had for 15 plus years now. Um, Susan, can you briefly discuss what some of those other conditions are for our audience? Yeah. I'm going to talk about them in sort of categories, but um, so we've talked quite a bit about viral uh, with the Bell's palsy and Ramsey Hunt, um, but there are other viruses and other bacteria that can also cause facial palsies. Um, one of, I'm, I'm not going to name them all because there are quite a few, but some of the more common ones are the Epstein-Barr virus, which is the one that causes mononucleosis. Um, Borreliosis um, is a bacteria that causes Lyme disease, and it's um, effectively treated with long-term antibiotics. The second category is tumors on or around the facial nerve. So an acoustic neuroma, or also known as a vestibular schwannoma, 
uh, facial schwannoma and parotid uh, tumors are all common tumors that can happen around the facial nerve and can cause facial palsy. Um, a third category is trauma. So people who've had car accidents, um, sometimes people have been cut by glass or by a knife. And there can be also surgical trauma. So people have had facelifts, people who've had dental treatments, um, and sometimes when they're in removing a tumor, the facial nerve can get roughed up as well. There are congenital as well as genetic and familial conditions uh, that people are either born with uh, a facial palsy, and that can be either from trauma during birth or the facial nerve didn't develop uh, in utero. Um, and then there are a number of, of familial and genetic conditions, um, Mobius syndrome, Malkinson, Rosenthal, there are a whole bunch of different um, conditions. Um, there are vascular causes, so stroke being a, a, a very common one, or a bleed in the brain can cause damage to the center of the brain where the facial nerve connects. And then there are some uh, medical and neurological conditions, so multiple sclerosis, amyloidosis, leukemia, sometimes polio, and a condition called NF2, which is actually a genetic or a, yeah, a genetic condition. So there are quite a few different um, conditions. Some of them, fortunately, not very many, do cause bilateral facial palsy. And can you explain to everybody what bilateral facial palsy is? Some people won't know. Yes. Um, so that means both sides of the face have been affected. Um, so sometimes that can be not at the same time. It might be one after the other, or it might occur at the same time. It just depends on the cause. So now that we know a little more about what Bell's palsy is and how it impacts the face, let's now talk about what to do in that acute phase. So, you know, you start noticing that there are some weird changes happening in your face. You, your eye is getting dry. You can't control it anymore. You feel your mouth is losing control. You look in the mirror and you think you're having a stroke. You might also feel a great deal of pain depending on what it is you're going through. Um, so, you know, and, and there could be other things happening as well. So, you know, at that point, what do we do? Yeah. So this is, this is, uh, for me, the, the important part of this podcast is in addition to the education is to, to let people know what to do. Cause I have often heard of, from people saying that they wait, um, a couple of days to see what happens with their face. And, um, that always makes me sort of sad because you want to go immediately. Um, do not pass go, go straight to the emergency room, um, to, uh, first of all, rule out that you aren't having a stroke because that's an important thing. Um, and so usually they'll do a CT or an MRI to make sure that it isn't a stroke or a tumor. Um, and then to get on treatment immediately. So the treatment you want to get on is prednisone because of the anti-inflammatory effect that it has. There's a little bit of controversy right now about the treatment of use of antiviral uh, for Bell's palsy. And that's because the evidence at this point is not clear whether antivirals make a difference with Bell's palsy or not. So some of you may have gone and not received it, and some of you may have gone to the emergency room and have received it. And that's the reason why, is that the evidence is at this point not clear. However, for Ramsey Hunt, you definitely want the antiviral as well as the prednisone because of the strong um, nature of that virus. 
Second thing you want to do, and often this is neglected when you go to an emergency room, you're not always told what to do to protect your eye. Because the eye can't close in the early stages, your cornea is very uh, subject to injury. And so you want to make sure you're using non-preservative or low-preservative drops, ointments at night, and taping the lid down uh, at night to protect your um, cornea. You want to use protective glasses, so a wraparound glasses are good, so if you're outside in the sun or in dusty conditions. And I always recommend that people go to see an optometrist or an ophthalmologist who can monitor the corneal health to make sure it's not getting dry or any ulcerations. You want to stimulate circulation on your face. So as I mentioned, your facial muscles are postural muscles, so they normally work almost all the time except when you're sleeping. And so because the muscle pump is not working, we want to make sure that the blood continues to circulate to those muscles. So you can use moist heat or a tapping sense, um, a technique using the tips of your fingers and tapping firmly all over that side of your face. You also want to try and maintain symmetry in your face because right now you only have one side of your face that's working well, your unaffected side. So it's doing all your expressing and your speaking. Um, and so what happens is the muscles on your unaffected side start to get shortened and tightened. So you want to start to um, stretch out the muscles on that side so that they don't get too tight for when your affected side starts to get better. Touch your face a lot, and um, that's to remind your brain that it's there. So like I mentioned, there isn't that feedback organ in your muscles in your face, so you want to make sure that the skin is stimulated a lot so that that message is received in your brain to let your brain know, I'm here. And so when the nerves start to come back, your brain hasn't forgotten about that part of your body. Rest. Eat well and allow your body to heal. These are really important things. You probably got a facial palsy if it was viral because you're run down and your immune system is suppressed. So what you really need now is to, to get lots of rest and treat yourself well. I often find that people start to go to lots and lots of doctors. So they see, go to see an ear and nose and throat doctor and a neurologist and they're just seeing more and more doctors because they're so frustrated by the lack of movement of their face. And I find that quite often what I hear from people is that they're more frustrated when they come back from those appointments because there's really not a whole lot more that those specialists can do at this point. You've received your medications, you're taking care of your eye, you've seen an eye specialist, and they can't really do much more except make sure that you don't have anything else going on. And certainly if your symptoms are strange or don't fit into a normal pattern, I would see a specialist to rule out any anything else more sinister, like a tumor. Uh, or a neurological condition. But otherwise, just rest and allow your face to heal. Um, now that we know what to do, what do you want us to know about the things to avoid when while we're waiting for facial recovery and resting? Right. And this is equally important, Michael. So um, I'm really glad that you're asking this question. So it's important to know what to do, but it's also important to know what not to do. And quite often when people don't receive enough information, they go to Dr. Google. And Dr. Google's got some good information, but it also has some really bad information. And also your, you know, your Aunt Bessie will, you know, give you some information and your best friend down the block and uh, everybody who knows you will start giving you advice. And you, you need to know what you should do and what you shouldn't do. 
the first thing I should say that's most important is don't do any facial exercises. And the reason for that is that if you think of your face on the affected side as a lamp, the way we turn a lamp on is we plug the plug into the wall and then we turn the little knob that turns the light on. But if the lamp is not plugged into the wall, it doesn't matter how hard you turn that lamp on, it will not light. And that's the same situation as the facial muscles on your affected side. There's no plug right now. The nerve is not talking to the muscles. So it doesn't matter how hard you push or try to close your eye or smile, it's not going to work. And the only thing that will happen is your unaffected side is going to get stronger and stronger and stronger by that huge effort that you're putting into your face. And as I just mentioned, symmetry is a problem because it's already working too hard. So we really don't want your unaffected side to get any stronger. No electrical stimulation. And this is a hard one because it was used many years ago when we didn't realize that facial muscles were slow to deteriorate. But we've now found that uh, through animal research that electrical stimulation can actually stop or slow the sprouting of your nerve if it does need to regrow. And so it also seems to lead to more um, connected movements when the nerve does um, recover, which are uh, we call synkinesis. And synkinesis is when, for example, I blink my eye and my mouth uh, pulls at the same time. So they're abnormally connected movements. So we'd want to do anything we can to avoid synkinesis from developing. Most importantly of all, electrical stimulation is not necessary. It doesn't help your nerve grow. Your muscles don't need it. Third, um, to avoid putting gauze patches or pirate patches on your eye. So it's best if you can tape your eyelid down because a gauze patch can actually sit right on your cornea and scratch it. It's way too rough for the surface of your eye. Because your eye doesn't close, you put a cup, uh, just a patch on top of your eye, the lid opens, and next thing you know, that gauze is sitting right on the cornea. Very irritating to the eye. Same with the pirate patch. If you wear it overnight, it can shift during the night, and the hard edge of the pirate patch will sit on your cornea. So best to, to take the lid. And lastly, if you do have acupuncture, and this is an area that's still a, a little bit open for debate as to what acupuncture does, but don't use electrical stimulation on the needles for the same reason that I'm recommending no e-stimulation um, up above. Great. Thank you, Susan, for uh, giving us some great information about the do's and don'ts in the acute phases of uh, Bell's palsy or facial paralysis. Um, what can our listeners expect with healing? What happens with our face after, it's, after it starts to heal? Right. Okay. So this, this is a really good question because a lot of people want to know how long do I have to wait with my face in this condition? Um, so the best way to answer this is to talk about the there are three main levels of injury to the facial nerve. And the first um, degree injury is um, where the nerve is irritated enough that it stops firing, but everything is intact. And once the prednisone does its job and the antiviral does its job and the virus just runs its course just the way it would with the cold, the nerve starts to slowly fire again. And this can happen anywhere from one week up to about eight weeks. And 
Fortunately, 85% of people with Bell's palsy fall in this category. So they're going to recover with just that medication uh, treatment and no other treatment is necessary. What we worry about is the 15% uh, of people who don't fall in that category or people with Ramsey Hunt who have a stronger virus. And they often can have a degree two injury. What happens here is that the outside tube or the lining of the nerve is intact, but inside those little tubes that the wires run in can break down as well as the nerve fiber itself. And then the nerve fiber has to regrow. And our facial nerve is amazing because it does regrow. It grows at a millimeter a day or an inch a month. And so it takes a little longer for that to happen um, before it can connect it back up to um, a muscle to make it work. The problem with a degree two injury in some cases is that the little tube that the wire ran through is a bit of a guide wire. But if the tube is missing, the wire will grow or the nerve will grow, but it doesn't know where to grow to. So it could end up at a different muscle than it originally started in. So, for example, an eye nerve can end up going into a mouth tube, and there it connects to a mouth muscle. So now the brain thinks it's talking to the eye, but now the mouth is working. And that's uh, an example of synkinesis, uh, as I talked about a little bit earlier. This typically will start happening anywhere from three to about eight months, depending on a number of conditions, so your age, other medical conditions, so diabetes, hypothyroidism, high blood pressure, for example, um, or any autoimmune diseases. Those are the big things that will, will affect your ability to um, grow faster or slower. And then the third degree injury is really if you've had a traumatic injury where the nerve has been cut right through. And if it's a nice clean cut, the surgeons will actually sew the outer tube back together again, and it becomes a degree two injury. Sometimes they have to do a new nerve graft if it's been a, a messy cut. So those are the three um, levels of injury to the nerve and the sort of timelines that uh, uh, you know accompany them. I, I would like to just add that you know, this is standard information and what we've learned by being part of uh, a lot of the support groups on Facebook and other support groups is that the time frame for, for healing is, is so varied mm-hmm. that, um, you know, I, I really want to leave listeners with hope that if there's still stuff not happening after eight months, that there can still be things happening because we've heard of, of others dealing with longer time frames for healing. Absolutely. So thank you so much, Susan, for being on this call and, and Michael as well is, is amazing for, uh, for us. And uh, we hope that everyone listening here has gotten some tips and some uh, greater understanding of what might be happening with their face right now and hopefully uh, a, a bit more knowledge about what we can do to be able to let this Uh, let our bodies heal from from what's happening with our face. Thank you for listening to this episode. We hope you gained a deeper understanding of facial palsy or at least got some good tips. Stay tuned for more episodes where we will discuss topics such as eye care and other physical and emotional care tips. We'll also share personal experiences with you.